Um, so the last night of our uh, study on the weird, on some of the weird stuff, and uh, we saved the best for last. We're going to get incredibly weird tonight, and really, the whole reason, the impetus behind this was that some of the stranger passages in Scripture all center around this the unseen realm. And so when I, when I started to go into the, a study on uh, angels and demons and Satan and understanding biblically what we believe as Christians about where, the origin of these, we had to kind of say the, the normal things. You know, we, we understand that there's uh, heavenly beings and that they're spiritual in nature and that there's a rift, there's a good side and a bad side. And we, we know all of these things, but then... It leads us into uh, kind of a little bit of a rabbit hole that honestly you could go in, you could spend all day in, and, and we won't, but um, you, you, you end up uncovering these, these different um, species that are clearly there in the scriptures. And the text, the passages that bring them out are super confusing, and a lot of times we just kind of go over them and just kind of pass by them. And so we've spent the last few weeks dealing with this concept of the sons of God and the many times in Scripture that the word Elohim is used that doesn't specifically refer to Yahweh Elohim. And so we, we know we've kind of set Yahweh aside and said, that sounds really bad, I don't mean it that way, but we've kind of set that term aside and said, okay, Yahweh Elohim is species unique in the, in the, in the seen or unseen realm. There's no one like him. He's the creator of all things. He's before all things. He's never was created. He doesn't have a beginning, doesn't have an end, but he is unique in that capacity. When the Bible uses the term Elohim, he's included in that grouping, but the other Elohim are created beings created by him, and it appears as though they, they pop up on the scene several times, referred to by the names sons of God, Council, the divine council, um, various terms like this, they appear in several places throughout Scripture. And it seems as though the Old Testament worldview in understanding the unseen realm is a lot broader than ours. That there's God, uh, the triune Godhead, if you will, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he, he created a, a council of beings that he operates and governs the world through. They have some measure of rule and reign in creation, and we're not told all the details on that, but we are told some rather strange things. Deuteronomy 32 seems to indicate that, uh, Moses seems to indicate that at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, when God divided the nations and sent them out, it was a judgment, and that he gave the nations over to the sons of God who, who ruled and reigned over them and formed for them really pagan deities. And that they worshiped them, and they, it, it was really effectively a judgment that he gave to the people. And so we see that they have this, uh, this capacity. Um, we see that the, in, in the Old Testament, there seems to be this concept of sort of a cosmic geography, that the people of God are located in the promised land, and that's God's land, but the pagans are cast abroad a- across the whole earth. And they too are given over to various gods. And to worship God, Yahweh, Elohim, rightly, is to be inside the promised land and no other 
other place. This is where God is worshipped. Out there is being turned over to pagan deities, to these sons of God. Um, and so it seems like the, the, the count, what's referred to as the council, the sons of God, they have some sort of ruling influence over the pagan kings of the earth. And what we saw two weeks ago was that when a pagan king falls, because that pagan king worships these pagan gods, that the fall of this pagan king is similar or akin to the fall of these pagan gods, these spiritual entities. So we saw in both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, where the author sort of weaves the story together of the fall of either the king of Babylon or the king of Tyre and Satan. Because the entity, the being, the God, if you will, that this pagan king is serving uh, has led to his demise. And why? Because Satan is inferior to God. That's essentially the, the main theme running through those, the falls of those pagan kings. And so you see in, the, in both Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 some, some, thi- some descriptors that are used for the king of Babylon or the king of Tyre that don't necessarily just fit the king of Tyre. So you were there in the Garden of Eden. Well, King of Tyre wasn't there in the Garden of Eden. Satan was, right? But he's weaving those two stories together, making one narrative that this King of Tyre, like Satan, has fallen. And um, so it helps to kind of make sense of some of these uh, more strange passages of why they exist. How do we how we understand Satan and and those kinds of things? Well, tonight uh, we're going to get to Genesis six one to four, and I think Genesis 6, 1 to 4, if there was a Mount Everest of passages in the Old Testament that are the most confusing, this would probably be the one. Or perhaps you might say the most disturbing, this would be the one. And probably the one that makes us the most uncomfortable and the one that makes us also go, all right, moving on. <laughs> are there any questions? And of course, there are none. Uh, <laughs> right? uh, Genesis 6, 1 to 4 has troubled uh, interpreters for, I mean, uh, thousands of years. So more than even the church, uh, it, this goes back into Jewish history. And, um, and it's, it's the explanation for it has never made people like super comfortable, okay? So it doesn't matter what your interpretation of it is. None of it, it, comes, it leaves you with like, that's perfect. It makes perfect sense. Let's, let's move on. So, um, so we're going to read Genesis 6, 1 to 4. And then we're going to talk about um, the interpretation of it and the ways it's been interpreted and, and, and all of that. So let's read it. Uh, in your packet, you should have the text of the ESV there. Uh, Genesis 6, 1-4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, uh, uh, for he is flesh. He, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, 
And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I'm sure that's pretty straightforward. There are no questions about that. There have been, um, over the course of history, there's, there's uh, uh, I would say, up until about the 4th century A.D., the interpretation of that passage was pretty unanimous. And it wasn't until about the 4th century A.D. that varying interpretations started to come up. The, the, the main constant interpretation of that passage has been what's typically referred to as the supernatural interpretation. The supernatural interpretation reads that passage like this. The sons of God who were angelic beings, members of the divine council, uh, saw that daughters of men, women uh, of the human species, were attractive, and they came down from heaven. They took any of them they chose as wives. They impregnated them, and the result was that those women bore children that were giants. Just gonna let that sit there for a second. <laughs> that is called the supernatural interpretation, or typically it's referred to as the supernatural interpretation. That's the one that everybody agreed with up until the fourth century. Yes. With the Nephilim, the interpretation is fallen. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Slow down, Doug. Uh, <laughs> There, uh, there is some debate. Um, th- there's, there's debate all over this passage, okay? So the word Nephilim is not even the least of, of that. Um, the, 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 the confusion is the origin of the word Nephilim. Um, traditionally, if you, look up, if you look it up in a Hebrew lexicon, typically what you're going to find is the word giant. Um, there's some question as to the root of the word and whether it comes from the word nafal, which means to fall, so it would mean fallen ones, or if that's actually the root. And I don't really want to get into this too much, but um, so Hebrew only has consonants, no vowels, okay? So only consonants, no vowels, okay? So there are some words in Hebrew, let's say, they, let's say there's three consonants. There's some words that all have the same consonants. Okay? So, some words that are not used very often, when, you, when they show up in the text and you go to determine what root they are, the meaning can vary wildly. Because... It could be this root word, which has these same consonants, and that means fallen ones. Or it could be this root word, which means giants, right? The deal with Nephilim is that when you survey the languages of the Mesopotamian region back in the day, they all tend to skew similarly with this same word for giants being Nephilim. And so... Um, that gives us some indication that 
probably is giants rather than fallen ones, but it could potentially be fallen ones. Now, I don't want to go too much into that because it requires a bunch of Hebrew, and, and I just really don't want to do that. I worked really hard in Hebrew, and, <laughs> and it's really tough, so just don't make me. Um, <laughs> but uh, so that, that, that's the, I, I would say that is the, the supernatural interpretation, and there is, to be honest with you, there's a lot of weight in that corner, okay? There is. All right, interpretive weight. I can see Doug ready to fight. Don't don't do it with me tonight, Doug. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me just work through it, and then we'll we'll talk. Because um, let me also say, as a precursor, um, like I said, there, there's not going to be any any way you interpret this where you walk away just feeling great about the interpretation. Um, it's also very open-handed. You know, I would say, well, I probably would lean this way or I may lean that way, but I'm not dying on the hill, okay? Do you understand? That's, that's what I mean. That's the way we take this. Um, so when it comes to uh, Genesis 6, 1 to 4, the supernatural interpretation is just that, that, that angels came down uh, and, and uh, spawned with, uh, with women. The alternative interpretation, there's been a couple offered, but I would say nowadays... If you picked up 10 commentaries that did not take the supernatural interpretation of this text, probably all 10 of them would take another interpretation, all the same interpretation, that um, the passage is about the sons from the line of Seth marrying daughters from the line of Cain. That's the vast majority of the opinions, especially today, but even coming out of um, the, er, the fourth century, starting with Augustine being the most predominant one, um, that the line of Seth being, you know what I mean by the line of Seth? God, uh, the chosen line, if you will. I mean, if you go to Luke chapter 3 and you see the genealogy that he presents there of Jesus being born, he traces it all the way back through Seth to Adam. And so Seth's line is going to be that uh, chosen line, if you will, that ends up developing, uh, obviously, Abraham, God's people, on all the way down through to, to Christ. Um, so that the line of Seth then looked at, call, called here the sons of God, saw that the daughters of, of men, that being the line of Cain, Cain being another son of Adam that was uh, killed his brother Abel, and was, was wicked. And so the line of Seth saw that the line of Cain was attractive, and so they, they intermarried. Now, there's precedence for this, just it, theological precedence. Okay, there's theological precedence for this. You, you go through the Old Testament, and what do you see of the Jews, right? They're, they're told not to intermarry. They're, they're told to only marry people. Christians today, uh, we're told, yoke with like kind, or we're told specifically, marry Christians. Um, so you, you've got precedents in the scriptures that would say, yeah, this is true. So what that interpretation would say is this is a precursor to all of that coming about, that God was seeking to preserve um, a, a people for himself and got to Abraham and then, you know, eventually went on. But there was a time, a spell in... Um, in Genesis 6, where they cross the streams, so to speak, as Ghostbusters would say. And we know you don't cross the streams. Um, now, 
Some of the problems, Ghostbusters fan, y'all didn't watch Ghostbusters, I guess, some, some people. Uh, <laughs> long time. Long, long time. Don't cross the streams, right? Um, so some of the problems with this view include an explanation of the Nephilim. Now, again, Doug has offered um, the alternative interpretation of the word being uh, fallen ones. Uh, m- most people are going to side against that nowadays. Some, some will still take that position. That's still a position you, you could potentially take and, and may be a potential explanation for it. I think most would say that, it, that that's not the case, especially when you look at other languages in the Mesopotamian region at the time. Um, most are going to indicate that Nephilim does mean giants. And so you, you, when the explanation for Nephilim being born to them is not there. If indeed the word Nephilim does mean giants, then we're missing an explanation there for how the line of Seth crossing over to the line of Cain and marrying the women there and having children that are massive human beings. That, that seems uh, strange, and there's, it's, it's hard to really get an explanation for that in that, that line of reasoning other than a different word. Um, and then also why the daughters are not called from Cain. It's not the daughters from Cain, but the daughters from humankind or mankind. Um, so, and this goes with the next line of reasoning here. There's no prohibition in the text of Seth's line marrying Cain's line. So um, nothing refer, and, and then the other is nothing refers to Seth's line as the sons of God, and it's among others. There, there, um, when you when you have when you have a text like this, you're looking for uh, what does the text actually say? Is there anything leading up to this text? that might give me an indication that my reading of the text is true and is, is correct? Is there anything after it that would give me an interpretation like that? And it, it's difficult when there's not a prohibition in Genesis 1 to 5 of Seth's line marrying King's line. And so you end up making a, a presupposition about the text, which isn't always bad, but sometimes can be bad, that this was prohibited, that Seth's line can't, couldn't marry Cain's line. Well, how do you know? Well, I don't, but I'm assuming that's true because this has to be the way to read it, right? That's, that ends up kind of being your interpretation of it if you take that line of, of reason. Does that make sense? You see where I'm coming from? You're saying that most of the new commentaries are for this? No, I would say most of the new commentaries that don't take the supernatural view take this view. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Plenty. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Plenty. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, Doug. I know it depends on the question, okay? Is it conceivable that the prohibition here is not necessarily the fact that the Seth Meyer is very something I think that that was a prohibition, but the issue is if you look at the text, it's the way, the lustful way that. Chose um, uh, according to maybe God's will or according to character. 
it's pure lust, do you think it's conceivable that God didn't like it? Uh, conceivable, yes. I think it requ- I, I think it requires um, you making a lot of assumptions about the texts that are there. Again, sometimes we have to fill in the gaps, and that's not always a bad thing. And sometimes there are interpretive challenges that are not there on the surface of the text. So, take for example, if you if you read a, a you could, you could go into Scripture, let's say not having any Christian background, not having any knowledge of, uh, of, of anything in Christianity, perhaps like some of our Alpha students, okay? You pick up the Bible and you start reading the book of John, there's going to be a lot of things that you can read and interpret on the surface, but that doesn't mean that the meaning is really clear. And it takes some interpretive gymnastics to help you understand what's actually going on there. I mean, there's times where they, the people that are speaking will speak with metaphors. Uh, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, when you hear that line, every single one of us think a man named Jesus standing on an embankment is, whom he, is to whom he's referring. But I'm guessing that somebody in our Alpha class, if they were to read that line, would say, what's this business about a lamb of God? And probably thinking there's a tree that he's pointing to that a lamb's tied up over there and has no connection to the Old Testament, doesn't understand any of that. We, we interpret those things naturally. We, just, we, we see those. We're so used to that terminology. We go right into it. So there's sometimes in, in the text of Scripture where you have to go, the surface meaning isn't the right meaning. So for our alpha student, we might say, you're thinking of an animal. That's not exactly it, okay? It's a man. But let me tell you how you got there. And you have to go back and do all this explaining, right? Well, so sometimes that's the case in any biblical text. And so, but I think with Doug's position on the text, which would be the, the line of, of Seth, and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong. I'm just saying that there's some hurdles there that are difficult for me to say definitively yes that there was a prohibition for Seth line, Seth's line marrying Cain's line I just I don't know where that prohibition is necessarily at least in the chapters leading up to chapter six um, for another thing you mentioned was uh, the the lustful way they they looked at the, uh, the women um, there's clearly no discrimination in how they chose, right? And that, that's pointed out. They, they took any they chose. There was no, there was no dis- discriminating boundary there. Um, but I, I, I don't think that that indicates that there was um, a particular motivation and that that's the reason God is, is punishing, because of the motivation. It does seem like every man, you see that afterwards in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And so, I mean, that, it's clear that wickedness is rampant in those days, but I think it, it just requires a, a bit of a jump. Now, here's the other thing that um, sort of, I think, puts more weight in the corner of the original interpretation or the, the more original interpretation. Go to Second Peter. Uh, excuse my packet here. Second Peter um, chapter 2, and then Jude, verses 5 to 7. Um, there is some debate as to, to what these passages are referring to, but 
um, let's just walk through the arguments of both and, um, and lay it out here. Second uh, Peter 2, 4 to 10, and then Jude 5 to 7. So, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned the, to extin- them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them, uh, day after day, he was tormented. He, uh, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in lust of defiling passions and despise authority, bold and willful, uh, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay, um, so Second Peter's dealing quite extensively with scoffers, and he's talking about how the righteous in deal with these people that are just talking about um, God as if he's not there, as if he's never coming back, if he's not going to judge the wicked, he's not going to judge us for our righteous deeds, our unrighteous deeds or whatever. And so Peter is dealing with a historical account of how God has dealt with unrighteousness in the past. And the first example he brings up is in verse 4, not sparing angels when they sin, but cast them into hell and committed them into chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And so the natural question would be, well, what is that? Two solutions have been offered for that. Maybe that is um, just the uh, fallen angels, right? Just the fallenness of, of, of angels, just the demonic... Uh, forces that join Satan and, and uh, sinned against God. Perhaps that's it. The other explanation is it's this in Genesis 6, what we just read, Genesis 6, 1 to 4, that that's what he's talking about. Um, in verse 5, he then moves to what example? What story? Noah. What book is he in? You can see that Peter is making his way through Genesis. All right. And, he's, and then, so what story does he bring up next? Sodom and Gomorrah, which is also in Genesis. And then, then what stories bring up next? Lot. He brings up Lot as a story in, in Genesis. So it's obvious that what Peter is referring to, the stories that he's referring to, are all in Genesis. And not only that, well, they're in, in order, right? <laughs> they go in, in order through the book of Genesis. And he's just, let me just give you four examples from the first book in the Bible of how God deals with the ungodly and how he rescues the righteous. That's his point. Um, so that alone, that, that passage alone, I don't know would be all that compelling until you get, I mean, you get down to verse 10 and he says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, are, is the the lust of defiling passions, is that, does that also apply to the angels when they sinned? Maybe, or maybe not. 
maybe it, the lust does not refer to them, but refer to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the despising authority refers to the angels only. So there's some questions in this passage, right? Um, but then we go to Jude 5 to 7, and he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now here's where it gets interesting. Look at verse 7. Just as, that's an important phrase I think, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, okay, what is just as and likewise referring back to? Right, verse, the verse that preceded it, verse 6. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, like the angels in verse 6, likewise, like the angels in verse 6, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued, here it says unnatural desire, the word literally is strange flesh, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah, how did they pursue strange flesh? What was that? Homosexuality. How did, uh, if this is referring back to chapter 6, and that the angels who left their proper dwelling likewise, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, pursued strange flesh, how does Jude interpret Genesis 6, 1 to 4? It would seem as though he takes also the supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 to 4. Now, let me save Doug's position real quick, so don't fight me. <laughs> so, it, I think it's helpful to understand that both Peter and Jude are quoting from First Enoch, or they're citing First Enoch. Some words they use exactly, some words they use loosely, and some of you are going, what is First Enoch? Uh, First Enoch is a book written by Jews in about 300 B.C., so this is, this is pretty early. It's an intertestamental book, so it's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So First Enoch has large sections of the text of, that are dedicated to this interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 to 4, the spiritual interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 to 4, and, um, or the supernatural interpretation. And Peter and Jude seem convincingly so to be referring back to that book, First Enoch, and taking that interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 to 4. So that's, that's, that's one thing. What some people will say about that, because I think it's pretty universally agreed upon that they're referring back to this book. But what some people will say is, it would be like me in a sermon saying, uh, just as Harry Potter killed Voldemort. All right? Use, oh, I should have said, spoiler alert. Uh, just as Harry Potter killed Voldemort. Now, is Harry Potter a real story? Absolutely not. All of us know that. But if somebody were to pick up my sermon 2,000 years from now and were to read it, they would be maybe confused. They would be saying, well, who is this Harry Potter and this Voldemort? Let's go back in history and find out. And the argument is that Peter and Jude are really doing the same thing about the book of First Enoch. It's a common book that people read constantly around them in their circles, and they're using it as a reference point for that point of view. Right? Or for just as a, something you, you commonly know. 
The reason I think that's unlikely is because all the other reference are straight out of the scriptures. Um, and I think when it comes down to it, it feels like to me, and maybe this is not true, but it feels like to me the and supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 to 4 makes us really uncomfortable. And so we hesitate to interpret it that way because, boy, how do I explain that to my atheist friends, <laughs> right? <laughs> Am I, I mean, right? That, that would be a concern, okay? So you get to Genesis 6, 1 to 4, you read it that way and you go, oh, my atheist friends are going to have a field day with this one. Um, I don't think that that, that that, I don't care which of the interpretations you take. Again, I'm open-handed on this. It's not a hill I'm going to die on. I don't think that should be the catalyst for why you don't believe that interpretation, the supernatural interpretation. We believe that God became man and dwelt among us. We believe that he died and rose again on the third day. That is the strangest thing that we believe. Bar none. That by belief in him, when you die, you have eternal life. That's the strangest thing we believe. So, this shouldn't bother me too much, but it does raise a ton of questions, right? How do angels, or whatever these sons of God are, how do they procreate? Doesn't Jesus say in the New Testament they will be like angels, and that they will neither be married nor be given in marriage, right? Yes, he does. Um, but he doesn't make the claim that they're sexless. He doesn't make that claim. He makes the claim that they're not married. Okay, so that's one thing. So I don't think that necessarily refutes that line of reasoning. But um, so I, I, I think that's one question naturally. The the other part of that question, how do they uh, how do they procreate, is not answered for us at all. We don't even come close to getting an answer to that in Scripture. Um, so the, the Jewish traditions leading up to the New Testament era and even for the first uh, 300 years really took the supernatural view of this passage. At least that's what's indicated by some of their writings. It wasn't until about the 4th century they took a different view. But another thing that comes up is in, uh, is in Numbers 13, 32, and 33. So look at that with me. It's second to last passage on the list. These are the spies going in to spy out the land before they determine whether they're going to go into it. This is where the, the only other use of the word Nephilim appears in the Old Testament text. And this further complicates, I think, fallen ones' um, interpretation. So it says in verse 32, So they brought to the people uh, of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, in parentheses, an explanation to the reader, the sons of Anak, who, were, who uh, come from the Nephilim. Uh, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. All right. So that seems to, the, the most logical explanation is that they're looking at really tall people. Uh, 
some might say giants, which would be why the word Nephilim was used. Um, we seem to them like grasshoppers. We're tiny. Um, they are not tiny. They are big. They are of great height, it says. All right. So it seems that I think that's another reason why a lot of people take that term Nephilim and say, ah, I think there's a different route that we're looking at here, that it, that it means uh, a, a race of giant people. Um, now, there are questions there too. The giants seem to be before the flood. And then, how are there giants after the flood? If they were before the flood and the flood killed everybody, including Noah and his family, how are there giants after the flood, descendant from the Nephilim? That also is a good question, to which we really don't get an answer. Um, some have speculated Noah and his family had Nephilim blood in it. I don't think that's right. <laughs> Some have speculated a ton of different things. Uh, the most logical explanation, if you do take the supernatural view, is that it didn't just happen once. It happened twice, or at least twice. Um, and they were punished, and it didn't form a good strategy for Satan to continue to, to do this. Um, questions about that? <laughs> Let me see first, Doug. Are there any other questions? <laughs> yes, go ahead. A different word than Nephilim, yes. Yeah, there is. Yeah, do what? Yeah, I think it just says his height. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't call him specifically a giant. Yes, Blake. Well, and that, that's, that's another interpretation of, of 33. I think the people that take the, either like the Doug, what Doug's already articulated tonight, that position, um, the sons of Seth or whatever, uh, most of them are going to say, yeah, it seems like they're, they may be uh, exaggerating. The only... I mean, you could. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's possible. It seems as though, and, and it's indicated that way in the ESV, it seems like the author makes a re reference to the reader. It seems like he kind of almost like pauses the story and makes a, a, a reference to the reader, which is indicated by the parentheses there. The ESV is indicated by the parentheses. Um, the sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim, um, and there we saw, you know, it, 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 is, it is entirely possible that they are exaggerating, yes. And um, I go back and forth on that and wonder if may, maybe that's what they are doing is they're, they're you know, but, but really I wanted to bring it up just because it's another time the word Nephilim is used and it seems like what they're indicating is really tall people. And so that would give us an indication of what the term Nephilim means. Whether or not they're lying about it and exaggerating the truth or whatever, um, God obviously makes them take another lap around the desert for 40 years. So <laughs> killing off a generation, so he's not happy about it. So, um, I mean, so whatever they're doing, if they're lying, I just think it gives us an indication of what the term means. Um, and so that, that points us then back to Genesis 6 and go, well, how do we interpret it here? Yeah. Good question, though. Jeff? 
Uh, yeah, the Anakim, which are in the land of Canaan, uh, are sons of Anak, who is a dude in the Old Testament. He's a dude. Uh, <laughs> who produced the, the Anakim. <laughs> who were the sons then of Anak. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, his, history lesson. He's a dude. Um, no, they're, they're inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They're, they were ungodly people that were judged and, and killed and I probably missed a blank or two. Yeah. Yeah. Which one? Second Peter two, four, and ten. Okay, um, but they connect the story to angelic figures who left their proper dwellings and pursued strange flesh. I will say they seem to connect. Um, again, there's that's that's part of the reason why there's been debate on this for so many years. Is um, you know. It's not, it's not like Peter comes out and says, oh yeah, angels came out from heaven and they had sex with women and they had produced giant babies. So just get over it, all right? That's what Genesis 6, 1 to 4 means. Peter doesn't say that. Jude doesn't say that. They, but it seems like they're leaning in that direction. And when you take into account that they're quoting, seems like citing from the book of Enoch, it seems like that is what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, supernatural view is the blank. Is that what you're saying of the next one? All Jewish traditions up to and including the New Testament era took a supernatural view of this passage. Yeah, Kathy. Oh, um, I don't think this is where they get it. I, I... I think there are places where, uh, probably not scriptural places where they get that. I think what's happening there, Kathy, because uh, let me repeat the question for the recording. Um, the question is about whether or not the mighty men of old, the men of renown, refers to a, a sort of a pre-dawn of humanity human. And I think what's happening there instead is that Moses... You remember, we do believe, and I think this is right, Moses is writing the vast majority of these first five books. And he's writing it, it seems like, towards the tail end of his life as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And so Genesis 1 is not written at the time Genesis 1 was, was written. It, it's written at the time they're ready, getting ready to go into the promised land and reminding this generation. Remember, you've probably heard stories about these people. They were the mighty men of old, the men of renown, people you've heard of before, and to which the reader is supposed to read that going, oh, yeah, I remember who you're talking about. I, I, I know the stories. They've been passed on from generation to generation. I, I get what you're talking about. I think that's probably what it's referring to. For people that, that believe in like a, you know, an older earth or maybe that they believe in a pre-dawn humanity, I mean, there's the why I don't think most of them are consulting Scripture on any of those things as far as getting that. I think most of them are just interpreting probably a, some gaps in between the storytelling in Genesis 1, and they're saying there's, you know, more there than, than what's told, yeah. Any other questions before I go to Doug? All right, Doug, hit me. Lay it on me, Doug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
if you ever see Doug on the street, uh, <laughs> yeah, just remember if you're listening to this recording. Um, so the, the, I think the way most would interpret that is they, first of all, were probably given, they were obviously given some sort of a leash, all right, a longer leash. They had, they produced these children, they were then condemned to hell. And then if we're taking the numbers passage to be that as well, another group did the same. And they were also thrown into chains of gloomy darkness. Right? Um, Here's the deal, though. When I, when I look at 1 Peter, and when I, or 2 Peter, and when I look at Jude, I think they're referring to that story. And I think they're saying affirmatively that that's what took place. Um, I realize there are alternative explanations for it. And whether or not it's a leap of faith, um, I think technically most of the things in Scripture are a leap of faith. So especially anything supernatural. So anything that we haven't like dug up from the ground or something like that. Um, so you, Moses and the children of Israel walk up to the Red Sea as Pharaoh's army is coming upon them, and a cloud covers them, and then the sea parts, and they walk across it on dry ground. So uh, we're essentially asking the same things of ourselves in that passage as we are with the passage in Genesis 6, if indeed we're reading that rightly. So that's what I'm saying. The supernatural view doesn't scare me because it's supernatural. Um, it shouldn't scare us because it's supernatural. The, super, the Bible is supernatural. By definition, it's supernatural. I mean, it's nothing if it's not supernatural. So I think when it comes to the supernatural view, I don't think the leap of faith argument. I don't think so. Right. Sure. And Genesis is kind of partitioned like that, where you have the godly line on the one hand, and you have what he kills himself. Um, not really. I just do, I don't think that we have um, pre-law law until the law comes about. And I think once God crafts for himself a people... Because before this, he doesn't have for himself a people. That's the purpose of Abraham. And so I, th I think uh, once the Abraham story comes about, well, then we've, we've clearly got some lineage being developed. But it's, it's almost universally held and pretty clear, it seems like, in the book of Genesis that Abraham is the, an, is the beginner of that line, of any line of distinction. And so, was it wrong for Esau to go and marry foreign women? Yeah, I, I suppose it was. He did it out of rebellion. Yeah, he did it out of rebellion, and, and so I, su I suppose it was. Right. Right. And so I do think there is some there is some people that are Godward in their in their worship, and they're aware of God, and there's some. I, mean, I think it even says that in at the there in verse six or following maybe um, that. Um, that he did have some inclinations towards God and he was righteous in that regard, but I don't think there was the, the pre-law expectation of these, the preservation of this line, at least, let's say, pre-Abrahamic. -Abraham, contrast like the line set with Lamech or somebody who's a murderer and a bragger 
Sure, yeah, and that's where it starts. That's where the alternative view starts is with Augustine. And I, I, I don't, or I guess he's the most famous. I, I just don't, when it comes to the, the, the evidence of the way that that text has been interpreted throughout the history, and, and like First Enoch, which was written 300 years before Christ, it's not authoritative, it's not part of the canon, it's not biblical, but it does give us an indication of how Jews interpreted that passage. And so... And, and so it helps us, because when you read the book of First Enoch, it's loaded with turn, tons of crazy. But, 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 but it does give us an indication that that's how they interpreted it. And so it's not beyond the pale to interpret it that way today. No. You're, but you're, you're, you're posing questions from silence. And so I can't, I can't answer where the text is silent. Do you think there are female angels? Text is silent. I have no idea. It's silent that they're male. All I know is it says the sons of God took for themselves daughters of men, and they had children, and it seems to indicate that they were giants. And I know that for... 1,300 years, the interpretation was those were angels. Beyond that, I go, were they male? And then, or did they possess males? And I don't know. <laughs> because the text is super silent on how it all worked. And the biology, I can just go, well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> right? That's why it's caused such consternation throughout the centuries. Kathy. Yeah, boy, this is a really good, um, good, it's a good question, and one that I'm not sure we totally have the answer for, but, um, oh, this, is, this leads to a lot of speculation, so let me just say this as we close, and then we'll just all leave confused, how about that? Um, so, so, there's a promise in Genesis 3, right, and the promise is what? A promise that we even held to it as, as hope when we read Genesis 3. What is it? Christmas. Well, Genesis 3.15, and it's a promise of, of Christmas one day, right? That there will be a seed come through the woman, and he will crush the head of the serpent. Okay? If we take the supernatural view of this text, and the satanic angels came in and began to procreate with women, what does it seem like their intentions would be? Are you following me? Yeah. What would be their intentions? To dilute the seed. Or to usurp it. To poison the water stream, all right? <laughs> to, 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 right? To... to and so the, 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 then the assumption would be, and if this is right, again, speculation as to what this verse actually means, 
Um, it, it could mean that, that that's what he's referring to, that his spirit, the sons of God, uh, will not abide with man forever for he is flesh. 120 years from now, I'm going to kill everybody with the flood, essentially, is what that would indicate. So the, the challenge then it would seem like is one from Satan to God saying, uh, how far will you go to bring about this seed? And the answer would be, I'll kill everyone. <laughs> right? right? Except for Noah. Well, surely you won't kill everyone. Oh, he did. <laughs> he killed everyone. Okay, and maybe that's not right, but... <laughs> uh, okay, so here, here's, let, me, let me pull back for just a second and say, when it comes to stuff like this, the rabbit hole can continue to go on, okay? But in reality, when we look at these texts, at the end of it, we have to kind of go, I'm not really sure. I think maybe this way, or it could be that way, but I don't know for sure. But um, it, it seems like Peter and Jude may point this direction, and that's why we study the Bible. That's why we continue to study the Bible, because there are mysteries in it that we're not quite sure we can totally explain. Um, but I do trust that in the end, uh, even if there are things in the unseen realm that would absolutely blow my mind, which I'm convinced there are, and even if, that if God decided right at this moment to give us all a sort of vision that allowed us to see what was going on around us, maybe that too would blow our mind, and I'm sure it would, and I'm sure it might terrify us. I'm sure those things are true. I also trust that when there are things that I don't understand, that I can continue to study and work toward coming up with conclusions, and I, can hold, I know when to hold things in an open hand. I'm willing to be persuaded by a better argument. I, I am. When it comes to this, I, I, I just don't think the ones that have been offered have been good enough to make sense of the text that's in front of us. That being said, if you hold a different opinion, that's fine. Okay? Does that make sense? You know, our faith does not negate reason. Right. Right. And, and, and really, the Bible's open to it. And honestly, when there are supernatural things that take place in Scripture, the Bible goes, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yes, I parted the Red Sea. Yes, Jesus walked on water. Yes, he healed the blind. These aren't metaphorical. They really did happen. There's not a scientific explanation. The, the, it's, it's not that, oh, well, it was a natural phenomenon where a volcano erupted and that was the pillar of fire they followed. I've seen that before. That's not true. That's not what he's saying, right? It's lending itself to supernatural things that took place. Anyway, there's questions that could go on forever. Next time we meet, we'll, we'll transition into man being the image of God and go on into the doctor, doctrine of, of mankind. So let's pray. And we'll get out of here. What's that? Maybe. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time where we could just look at an incredibly bizarre passage that we admit that we're um, inadequate to rightly understand. And so I pray, Lord, that this wouldn't just merely be an academic exercise, but it would maybe stimulate our thought processes that we would uh, desire to learn more and read more and study more and inquire more of the things that we believe and that 
if nothing else, that um, taking a look at Scripture and asking questions of it would bring up things in our mind that we've never thought about before, that it would lead us into a deeper relationship with you to where we, we entrust our souls to your care and we know that where you're leading us is into good places. And so I pray that those things be accomplished through in and through this study or anything else that we do here together as a body. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>